The following interview was recorded over the telephone, and due to some difficulties with the phone line, there are intermittent moments when the sound quality suffers. We apologize, and despite these technical shortcomings, we hope that you will still find the interview to be a worthwhile listening experience. I'm very excited to be able to speak for the next few minutes with the co-hosts of a very popular and intriguing and some would say much-needed podcast called Pantsuit Politics. This involves uh, a collaboration between uh, two women, two friends, one essentially from the left, one essentially from the right, who wanted to find a way to talk about issues, including some of the most difficult and divisive issues that confront the American public right now, issues which we seem almost entirely unable to talk about in, in civil, intelligent fashion. And uh, their efforts have involved not only this uh, really intriguing uh, podcast, but also a brand new book, which is titled, I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening, A Guide to Grace-Filled Political Conversations. And in this book, they have a lot of what I think is very, very helpful and perceptive advice on how all of us can do a better job First of all, understanding ourselves, where we're coming from, and where people who see the world very differently than we do might be coming from, uh, in order for all of us to perhaps come together in ways that at the moment seem uh, all but impossible. It's a wonderfully written book. It's published by Nelson Books, and I'm very pleased to have the next few minutes uh, to speak with Sarah Stewart Holland and Beth Silvers, who I believe are both on the line co-authors of I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening, A Guide to Grace-Filled Political Conversations. Sarah Stewart-Holland, Beth Silvers, we welcome both of you to The Morning Show. Thank, Thank you so, you so much, much for, for having, having us. us. Glad that we can have this conversation. I'd like one of you, and make sure you identify yourself so we can kind of get start to get a sense of who's who from your voices, of, of how the two of you first knew each other and then how you came together in this new project. Well, we went to college together. We were sorority sisters, but we had just stayed acquaintances in the 13 years since college. We knew each other over Facebook and sort of had connected, reconnected over motherhood, um, as most people do through social media. I had been in working in politics, but had stepped out to move back to my hometown to raise my children and was beginning to get interested again, thought about I want to do a podcast, when Beth reached out and said, hey, would you ever be interested in the sort of opposite side of the aisle view on your blog? And I said, yes, and the post went really well, and I thought, wait a second, maybe this is a podcast. So I, I said, would you ever want to do a podcast? And she said, what's a podcast? And I said, don't worry, we'll figure that part out. <laughs> and that's how Fancy Politics was born. I, I think what's really important to talk about is that we were not close friends. We built a friendship talking politics, which I think seems really crazy to most people, but it is true. Right. It seems right now like a much better way to make enemies than to make friends. So you, have, in other words, you have grown much closer than you ever were before exactly because you have been brave enough to talk about some of these really difficult issues. Absolutely. And this is Sarah, by the way. Okay. Very good. One of the things you say in the introduction to the book when we talk about the intensely divisive situation in which we find ourselves and this polarization of our politics, you say 
we are choosing this. We are making a very, very conscious choice to be as divided as we are and to see ourselves in such divided fashion. What, what, what prompts you to say that? And what are the most important ways in which this is true, in which this is a very conscious choice, not an inevitable, inescapable scenario that we find ourselves in? How are we choosing this? This is Beth, and I think that one of the things that most clarified for us that this is a decision is the advent of social media, because social media allows us to clearly see how each of us choose to have our own opinions reinforced constantly rather than engaging with material that could challenge us. You would think that the Internet and social media would have really opened up our dialogue, would have exposed us to so many perspectives unlike our own, so that we could test those perspectives and further develop our own thoughts and kind of challenge ourselves with all this information at our fingertips. Instead, what almost all the research and just a quick scan of your own feeds will show you is that most of us have grown even more isolated so that we only engage with sources that make us feel like, hey, I am the smartest and everybody who disagrees with me is an enemy of the United States. And when you can see how we're actually curating the information that we interact with, you can see that what we are really looking for is not to be informed or challenged or to even contribute to a democratic republic. Instead, we just want to feel good about ourselves. And that comes across in the way that we interact with that information. Hmm. You make an interesting point in uh, the first chapter of the book, which is in this part called Start With You, in which you uh, call people to kind of, first of all, really carefully examine them themselves. And as you're talking about this whole matter of talking about politics and, and the whole matter of avoiding that, you say uh, this partly comes from wanting to uh, avoid uncomfortable moments engaging with people. Uh, So you write, in our efforts to protect relationships from political tension, we have instead escalated that tension because the reality is that we never stopped talking politics altogether. We stopped talking politics with people who disagree with us. And I think that is really a very, very good point. In fact, there are plenty of people who are talking about politics now more than they probably ever have in their lives. But that does not mean that they are are engaging in meaningful conversation with people whose political views are different from their own. That is what is so exceedingly rare right now. Yeah, when we say that we, you know, built a relationship talking politics, it's not because we were just going back and forth saying, oh, you're so smart, you're so smart, you're so right. There were really uncomfortable moments. We had to be vulnerable. We had to be honest when we were wrong or when we misunderstood our own values or each other's. We often say it's not easy, but it is simple. I mean, it can be difficult to expose yourself to to engage with other human beings when you know you might hurt feelings, you might misspeak. Um, you might misrepresent yourself. And so, I, you know, it is, it is a, a act of grace, which is what we call these political conversations, to step out and say, I don't have a monopoly on being right, and I'm going to go out and risk being wrong or being hurt because the act of engaging with my fellow human beings and the work of getting together in our democracy and talking about these things, it's worth it. Hmm. 
One of the key words, another key word in your book besides grace is the word nuance. I think it was uh, Beth who actually wrote a, a, a blog post that called for more nuance in the face of what seems to be uh, a, 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 a massive, uh, <laughs> let's, uh, let's call it addiction to the notion of false dichotomies, that everything breaks down to this or that, left or right, blue or red, and uh, you call, and both of you call for a return to nuance. What are the most important ways we need to think about nuance in this context? Well, I think you said it well, that false dichotomies might be the single greatest threat to our continued democracy, not to speak in too much hyperbole, but we really are at a place where we believe that the government is a fantastic solution to every problem, or the government has no business in any aspect of my life. Um, And that kind of sense of false dichotomy bleeds into a multitude of issues. So when we talk about nuance, what we really mean is let's ask questions. Let's make room for degrees that some things are wrong um, unequivocally and some issues are black and white, but that that's not the case for most issues. In most issues, we're operating on a spectrum that the level of involvement that the federal or state or local government should have in an issue is a matter of degrees. You know, my philosophy is that local government should have the most involvement in the issues that touch us, state a little less, federal a little less. There is a split, but that's different than all in or all out. All taxes are bad or all taxes are good. So we really want people to just make a little bit of room. And we have found that making a little bit of room around political issues also makes a little bit of room around things that are um, much more central to who we are as human beings, that we can make a little room around our parenting. We can make a little room around our relationships with family members and friends. We can make a little room for ourselves and our own ideas. So this practice of bringing a little bit more nuance into our political thinking has really enriched our lives in surprising ways. Mm. I really love the metaphor of the jersey, (laughs) which you explore in Chapter 2, which is titled, Take Off Your Jersey. And you feel like, metaphorically at least, there are way too many of us right now who engage in political conversation wearing a jersey, and that wearing a jersey is one of the worst things you can do uh, in order for there to be meaningful conversation and dialogue and, and debate. Explain to our listeners what you're getting at here. What kind of jerseys are we wearing that you hope we can learn to take off, at least from time to time? I think one of the central issues with the jersey, when we talk about team sport, is that we expect that jersey, that party identity, to contain the entirety of who we are as human beings. You know, for better or for worse, a lot of our other group identities, be it religious, be it social organizations, have really fallen away. And so we put all this pressure on the political parties to contain all of our values, and they're not built to do that. And when you're operating in a winner-take-all system, which, for better or for worse, most of our elections are, it raises the stakes. And so every election is the most important election of our lifetime, and the stakes are so high that we can justify all kinds of terrible behavior towards one another because, well, we have to win, and everything's on the line, including my entire identity. And so, of course, I 
I can treat you as less than. Of course I can dehumanize you because the stakes are high enough to justify that because we've treated it like a team sport. Like every single election is the Super Bowl and the winner is in charge of all of America and all of our values and all of the issues. The uh, intriguing thing is, of course, sometimes there are elections that really are that important. Uh, I mean, where where it is not just we are imagining it to be important, but we're sort of or puffing it up into importance that it doesn't really have. Sometimes there are elections that are that crucial. Even in those instances, do you think it would be helpful, in a sense, to take off the jersey? Absolutely. Every election is important in a way, right? And every election has serious consequences. And sometimes it's hard to even foresee what those consequences are. So it's not that we're saying that participation is unimportant. It is that we're saying we should take that process seriously in a way that's productive. So evaluating the candidates in front of us without defaulting to voting for the person who shares our team jersey evaluating how people are going to work together. I think a lot about uh, the congressional committees that are so in the spotlight right now and how I think the committee that's functioning the best is the Senate Intelligence Committee because you can see Democrats and Republicans working together as partners. That's something we don't think about a lot as voters, but if we put the whole scheme of the government in front of us and make decisions about who can work together, who can get things done, who can represent my values, but who can also represent other people's values in a way that ultimately enhances decision-making. When we put the jersey on and we're acting only as a partisan, we're really missing important elements of the process. And I think that's why we're getting results that we consistently say we don't like, even though we keep engaging in the same behavior. Hmm. It is in this convers- this particular chapter that you touch on something that I think we need to mention in this interview, and that is the fact that that both of you uh, happen to be coming from uh, a a place of of faith. That is, your Christian faith is very important to you, and uh, it is part of who you are, and it shapes part of how you approach many of these questions. That being said, uh, I don't think one needs to be a Christian or even a person of faith to derive a lot of important value from your book. I want to be sure to say that as well. I want to be—I want to make sure to give you a chance to explain uh, a, an interesting distinction that you make in this particular chapter, in which you are are calling on people who are uh, coming from a religious faith or spiritual. You ask that you say that we should participate as an expression of our faith not as a fulfillment of our faith. In other words, faith or values should inform rather than define our votes, opinions, and ways of talking with our neighbors about the future of the country. I would love to hear more from you about that distinction between especially faith or values informing rather than defining our political stance. What do you mean by that distinction? Well, one of the most important things we talk about is that We want our faith to inform the way in which we engage. You know, it's not a calculator through which we run every policy position that tells us, okay, well, because I go to church on Sunday, this is how I should feel about X, Y, and Z policy issues. That's not how human beings work. That's not how faith works. And so what we do want is that after we engage with someone, after we come away from a conversation, 
especially with someone with whom we really disagree with. We want our faith to be present in the way that we engage, in the way we talk about politics, not necessarily the policy positions themselves. We want to recognize the humanity of every person we meet in conversation, especially when we talk about issues and values. And today is a framework for our values. Other people choose different frameworks, but those values and the idea that every human being is deserving of basic human dignity in every situation, but particularly in which they have a conversation about politics, that's what we're really trying to get at. Not that, well, I'm a Christian, so I obviously believe X, Y, and Z about X, Y, and Z policy position. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with uh, Sarah Stewart-Holland and Beth Silvers about their book, I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening, A Guide to Grace-Filled Political Conversations. Uh, you include a, a very uh, interesting book, uh, a chapter, I should say, about uh, the word why uh, and, and, the, and the fact that it's very important to not just believe what we believe but have some sense of why we believe what we believe. And you ultimately then, uh, and also call us into question the, the notion of or, that back to that false dichotomy thing. Uh, so we should think more about the word why and maybe use the word or as in either or a little bit less. But then uh, in the second part of the book, that's when you call us to turn our eyes outward and we think about the way in which we can engage with others and in particular with those who see the world differently than we do. And more than anything, what you call for is for a return to the notion of grace. How are you using the word grace in this context? And how are we to treat each other with more grace? Well, thank you for that question. I know that grace often has a distinctively Christian connotation, and certainly our Christian backgrounds inform our notion of grace. But we're really using grace in a more secular sense in our book, because we don't think it's exclusive to Christians or to people of faith. We're talking about grace in the sense that we all belong here. Pragmatically, we all are here. Sarah often says, you know, the states that you don't like the way they vote aren't going to leave America anytime soon. Um, And so pragmatically, we just need to learn to operate together. And we also believe that we're all enriched in a deep way, that, that emotionally and spiritually and intellectually, we are enriched by viewing one another as equals. That's the premise of our country. And so when we talk about grace, we're saying, meet the person in front of you where they are. Understand they are not going to listen to you and abandon every experience that forms the context of their belief system. We know people would love it if we wrote a book that said, here's how to make everyone agree with you. We can't write that book because humanity is more complex than that. But the notion of grace makes room for this disagreement. It makes room for you to feel really strongly. We are not calling for compromise on every issue. There are issues that we should have real tension about and places where we should say, I am standing firm right here. But I can stand firm right here and still respect you for standing firm right there and still treat you with dignity and just keep at this effort to learn more about one another. And when we make that kind of room... um, it, it allows us to stop taking cheap shots over information people get wrong and instead nurture relationships where we're able to talk about how we see things differently. Mm. I really appreciated uh, the second uh, chapter following the one we just talked about, which is Give Grace. The chapter right after that, chapter six, is titled Get 
curious. And I think you really say some interesting things here uh, about uh, the importance of genuine curiosity. And you write at one point, transformative conversation, the kind of conversation that can break open Washington's gridlock and open up a world of political possibility requires personal humility in the form of genuine curiosity. I think you are saying something of supreme importance there, that uh, there are not enough of us who are genuinely curious or humble enough in the first place to be curious about others. And in a sense, none of this works if we don't have that quality uh, at the outset. Can you say more about that? I think that curiosity is really a natural outflow of grace because there has to be an acknowledgement that I don't have a monopoly on being right, that everybody else has a right to be here too, and that I'm curious about what that looks like. I mean, I even, I think that You know, we often speak of America as an experiment, an ongoing, incomplete symphony. And I am curious to see what that looks like with my fellow Americans. Not because I just want to be right and I want it to be over, but because I think that the the magic, the interesting thing about America is that it's this journey and that we're figuring it out as we go because no one's done it before. And I'm really curious about that. And I think that when you can step into that, when you can accept the vulnerability that comes with that, the the flow of information that comes with that, the fact that you're going to be wrong and you're going to learn new things about yourself that might not always be comfortable, it is a really, really wonderful ex- experience and experiment. And I think you see that um, often in writing of the Founding Fathers. We, we use a quote at the very beginning of our book from Hannah Arendt, where she talks about they just enjoyed it. They enjoyed engaging with each other. And I think we've lost that. We've, we've stopped being curious. We've stopped seeing the joy of just connecting and discussing things with each other, not necessarily um, getting that, that gotcha moment or that one-up, but really just being, sitting down with curiosity, not to convince, but to learn about each other. Mm. You also tell us that it is really important that we acknowledge the complexity of the world and the complexity of, of most issues uh, in a world that values simplicity. And there's a rub there, isn't there? I mean, that if anything, the world is more complex than it has ever been, and yet we seem to want things to be simple. And uh, I think what you are doing is calling us to... Uh, to be brave enough to, to not settle for the simplistic, but to confront the complexity, to confront the paradoxes of, of the issues that, that we are facing right now. That's right, and it's unsettling to do that. It's unsettling, especially in a world where we have so much access to information. We know so much more about what's happening across the globe and within our own government than we ever have. And in a way, I understand why we see a corresponding increase in partisanship, because that is a simple lens through which to view all of these issues. And there's some kind of safety in simplicity. These are the good guys. These are the bad guys. This is right. That's wrong. I think bravery is such a great word, and I love that you used it, um, because it can feel a little bit groundless um, to not view political leaders in terms of this is a good one or a bad one. 
Hmm. It can feel disorienting um, to have a perspective on an issue that doesn't really fit within either party's framework. Um, You hear a lot about people who say they feel politically homeless right now. I tend to be one of those people. And that's hard. That's much harder than grabbing a group identity or a simple prism for issues. Um, But we also find that we understand ourselves so much better when we proceed with curiosity. And we find that when you really strip away all of the noise and analyze topic by topic um, and leave some conversation saying, I just don't know, um, you're, you're kind of, a, you're, but you're better for it. And we think that our political engagement would be better for it. I would rather hear some members of Congress occasionally saying, I don't know, um, than beating a drum that sounds inauthentic and shallow and distrustful of me as a voter. Right. You also call on our political leaders to trust that the American public or more of the American public is is capable of confronting the complexity of issues, that they should not feel like they must boil everything down into the simplest of, of, of terms, that, that, uh, that there are plenty of Americans uh, out here, uh, the th- three of us are among them, uh, who, who don't mind delving into the complexities and the difficulties of these issues. Uh, in, our, in our last little bit of time, I, I want one of you to talk about uh, the chapter called Exit the Echo Chamber, in which you offer up some really tangible nuts and bolts ideas on how someone can kind of reorient themselves in terms of how they uh, approach the matter of political discourse, and in particular, how they approach the matter of engaging with those of different political views. What are a couple of your favorite suggestions from this chapter? Well, I think one of the most important things to remember when we say exit the echo chamber is that you're really taking the control back. For many of us, we have started to let algorithms predict what we see as far as news. We're getting most of it from a social media feed, which is going to reward things that make us anxious, make us fearful, engage a lot of emotion, instead of taking our power back and deciding that we're going to look at the news and we're going to choose which stories that we see and that we're going to push ourselves to choose stories that always don't make us feel comfortably aligned with our worldview. Because that is that exercise of curiosity. That is how we engage with the process. I think what I want everyone to understand is that we're not saying, hey, if we start having difficult conversations, it'll change the world. We have a lot of work in front of us. But in order to engage with that system and to engage with our media and to start making the changes many of us want to see, we have to start talking. That's the first step to engage in a democracy. And then there's a lot of work after that. But if we don't feel empowered to look at the news, to distinguish, to engage with one another, to be able to say I'm wrong or I don't know, then any work after that is going to feel even harder. And so these first few steps of exiting the echo chamber, engaging with one another, are really essential, I think, to taking back our power within our democracy, to making some systematic changes so that we don't all feel so overwhelmed and anxious all the time. Hmm. I like that chapter so much, especially what you lay out in terms of creating an empathy map in which you really try to put yourself in the shoes of someone else that sees the world and many of these issues very, very differently. And I should add that your book also does not speak in generalities, but also includes uh, some moments in which the two of you engage on some of the most difficult issues that confront us right now. I really am impressed with this book. And again, it's titled, I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening, 
a guide to grace-filled political conversations published by Nelson Books. The co-authors, Sarah Stewart-Holland and Beth Silvers. Thank you, both of you, for creating this book and for being part of the morning show today. I enjoyed this very much and very much enjoyed your book. Thank Thank you so much. much. Thanks for your kind comments and the time you spent with the book.